Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done over 650 of them now. Um, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out some of the previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the website, and there's also a page explaining some alternatives to PayPal. Um, my, guest, my guest today is Claire Goldsberry. Claire has been a lifelong student of religion and spiritual traditions. Um, having been reared Protestant Christian, her goal was to study for the ministry after completing her BA in journalism at Arizona State University. However, a few semesters into those studies in a cooperative study program with Claremont School of Theology, she was called away into the study of Buddhism. For the past 27 years, she's been engaged in the practice of Buddhism, as well as the study of Hinduism, Gnosticism, Theosophy, philosophy from the ancients to modern philosophers, and modern Christian religions. She has even added the study of quantum physics to the mix after noticing that quantum, modern quantum ideas parallel those of Buddhism as the science of mind. She has also followed her inner voice <clears throat> as it is that call that is the true call on her path. She teaches classes in all of those topics and tries to encourage people to follow their own inner light, um, their own inner voice, and not to be led astray. The questions are always more important than the answers, as she tells her students. So welcome, Claire. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And I think mostly today we're going to be talking about death because <laughs> you wrote a book about <laughs> it. Um, but we could also veer off into other topics if people have other questions or if, if uh, you know, you have some thoughts that come to mind, of other things you'd like to discuss as we go along. <clears throat> and last week we was also about, actually, not, last week was about near-death experiences. I interviewed Penny Sartori. So I guess Bat Gap is in a little mini goth phase or something or. <laughs> talking about death <laughs> but, but this won't be near death this will be full-on death we're going to talk about today <laughs> well life too yeah, yeah life <laughs> right <laughs> uh, um so i've read your book so i know why we're going to be talking about this but um maybe you should start us out with you know why you wrote the book you wrote and you give us the title of it because i haven't mentioned it yet and, um, you know, how you got interested enough in this topic to write a whole book about it. Well, I wrote The Illusion of Life and Death, Mind, Consciousness, and Eternal Being, uh, as the result of my uh, significant other, Brent, who uh, was diagnosed with esophageal cancer in, in uh, 2002, in the uh, about September of 2002. And at that point, I've been studying Buddhism for, oh, about six or seven years. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but this was going to be my, uh, my real life lesson in what I had been studying uh, for those years. And sometimes we can know something intellectually, but then when life jumps up and hits us in the face, then we're called on to really you know, do I really know this? You know, am I really ready for this? Or is it just so much uh, intellectual uh, understanding? 
I began writing um, kind of a, a journal uh, that I would write in several times a week uh, as Brent's illness went on and and uh, and he had surgery first, but denied any other treatment. He did not want to become nothing but a uh, you know an experiment in in uh, in cancer treatments. He didn't want to just have to go to doctor's appointments all the time. He, you know, he wanted to live his life, um, even if it would be short. He wanted to live it. He didn't want to. Uh, be involved with, you know, trying to fight it or uh, trying to cure it because there there is no cure for esophageal cancer. So I began to write this uh, and the lessons that I was learning, the lessons that Brent taught me as, as it went on. And ultimately, after he died in April of 20, uh, 2004, I looked at all of this journal material that I had kept, you know, the funny stories. He was He was a really funny guy. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe people can learn something from this because I felt like that the, the Buddhist philosophy, and I do call it a philosophy. Um, I don't think anyone has to be a Buddhist practitioner to learn from Buddhism and learn, uh, you know, some of the practices that help make life easier to live and more fearless, I might add. Um, but I looked at that and I thought, maybe somebody could be helped by this. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, and, and as a writer, obviously, it was my intent to really uh, eventually get the book out there, uh, which uh, I did, fortunately, through Monkfish Publishing. I'm very grateful for them uh, and the help that they've provided. And hopefully this book will be able to help people have a, an, an, easier, an easier life, a fearless life and a fearless death. And I think that's um, I think that's important for us uh, to to have a, a good life is to have a fearless uh, life and a fear not having a fear of death. I think fear of death actually interferes with our ability to, to live a fearless life. Um, and I think we're, we're we've seen that more and more uh, in um, in the world in the last few years. Yeah. Um. Well, in most of the spiritual traditions, there's, <clears throat> you know, they deal with death in one way or another, and uh, we can we can get into discussing how they may differ. I mean, obviously, a lot of Christianity seems to emphasize that, well, you know, you're either going to heaven forever or you're going to hell forever, and there's no in between, and uh, and there's no coming back. You know, I mean, it's it's this is your one life, and then that's it, and. You know, obviously, Buddhism and Hinduism have a different view that you don't stay anywhere forever. You may go to heaven or hell, but it's not going to be forever. And you are coming back if you're not fully enlightened. Uh, personally, I, I, you know, I resonate more with that kind of perspective. Um, but, you know, I think even Christianity, there's a famous painting. I don't know whether it's by Rembrandt or somebody, but it's by a picture of some monk, monk contemplating a skull, you know, just sort of holding a skull in his hand and looking at it. Maybe, probably not Rembrandt, but um, you know, why would he be doing that? I mean, I'll let you answer the question. Well, I think uh, one of the one of the things that uh, Buddhists focus on is uh, remember death. It's kind of something that every day, remember death. And there's a lot of other other, uh, you know, sayings that, that we kind of uh, 
philosophize on or concentrate on on a daily basis. But I think the one remember death, and that I think that's what that painting probably rec- uh, recognizes, is that you know by looking at a skull, remember death. That all is Im- impermanent. Change is just a part of life. We're not going to stay, like you said, anywhere forever. Um, and, and that uh, remembering death can help us live a better life. And I think that's the important thing is to being able to embrace change and to have an idea that all is impermanent. That way we're not surprised when stuff happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. And some people might think remember death sounds morbid or depressing or something, but I find it quite the opposite. I mean, you know, there's that saying, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we may die. Um my take on it would be, no, don't just eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we may die. And you should be doing something <laughs> serious with your life while you're here. Not to say that you can't have fun, but um, obviously there's a lot of spiritual progress that can be made. And you right. don't want to just squander life in transitory pleasures. Right. That That's right. And, and yeah, a, a lot of people do think that some of the Buddhist uh, philosophies um, tend to be pessimistic. And, um, and so I find myself often having to explain these things to people, uh, why they're not pessimistic, um, and, and why they actually help us to live a better life, um, and, and help us to have a better death, actually. If you remember death, you're not going to be really surprised when it happens. Um, and I think that learning to make these things a practice helps put a different spin on it. It's not, Remember death because, yeah, tomorrow I might, I may die, but remember death because that means today is very important. And I've been given this day and I should really try to live it to the best of my ability and try to help people and try to be the best person I can be today. Yeah. I mean, to use a, a metaphor or an analogy, a, a college student knows that he's going to have final exams at the end of the term. And, you know, so what does he do? Does he just party all term and then hope he's going to pass the exams or does he buckle down and and study? Um, So I just think that life is a precious opportunity. And, you know, we we're here to make spiritual progress. And if we understand that, then we'll just apply ourselves to it, which, again, doesn't mean not having fun in life or you don't have to just sort of wear, a, you know, a hair shirt and beat yourself with birch branches. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, there's so many things we can do to make hay while the sun shines, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, it, it, everything is just how people look at it. And, and I think it's how you've been raised, too. We've all been raised in different religions, different belief systems, different philosophies. Um, and I had a lot of questions when I was a kid. Um, there were a lot of things about life and, and why people seem to have different opportunities in life. Or, it, you know, we would have these mission nights every once in a while at church. And, um, we had missionaries over in what was then uh, the Belgian Congo uh, back in the day. And I would look at those children. I go, well, now, okay, my mom and dad tells me that God loves everybody. But why are those children where they are? Uh, why don't they have all the same wonderful things that I do? 
you know, um, you know, everything I wanted, you know, ponies and, you know, I was always, you know, I, was a, I was a lucky girl, I guess, or maybe karmically, I got the life that I created through my past lives. But it was just trying to figure this out. Why is everything so different? And ultimately, that ended up being, you know, the answers was in my study of Buddhism. That, you know, and the idea of karma, karma and reincarnation, and that the two go together because it's very important. Um, they have a saying in, in Buddhism, if you want to know uh, what your previous lives were like, look at your current life. If you want to know what your next life will be like, look at your current life. You know, this idea that we're constantly creating the life we have uh, through our karmic implications, our karmic intentions. And I think uh, that's something to remember, too, that what I'm doing today is actually the creation of tomorrow. And, and what I have today is the creation from my past lives and even from this life and, and the choices I've made and the paths that I've taken and even the questions I've asked that have come to me in, in amazing answers. Yeah. And let's let's go into this a little bit because I can think of some objections that I've heard from people about the idea of karma and reincarnation. For instance, um, when your partner Brett um, was it Brett or Brent? Brent, uh, Brent with, with an N. Okay, when he had esophageal geal cancer, now someone might have said, "Oh, bad karma, dude. You know, you 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 must have done something bad." But we have all kinds of karma, and it fructifies uh, at various times. Um, and so, I mean, it, sometimes people are kind of accusatory when somebody has something like that. They go, oh, they must have bad karma. And it seems non uncompassionate, you know, when somebody's really going through something. That's the last thing you want to be doing is blaming them for, for what they're going through. Um, and I'll let you respond to that before I continue. Well, I, I think there is a lot of misunderstandings about karma. Karma is just action. Uh, if you look at the Sanskrit word, it means action. And uh, even in Christianity, uh, you reap what you sow. You know, Jesus even said that in the New Testament. You reap what you sow. And, and so there are consequences uh, to all of our actions. Body, speech, and mind are the, the three that we're supposed to focus on. But all of our actions, and, and in Buddhism, there's right action, there's right intention, there's right speech. Um, and, and so there, the Eightfold Noble Path kinds of outlines those. And so it doesn't, it, people think karma may, like retribution. Well, you must have done something really bad because now you have cancer. And, and not necessarily retribution. I, I don't even like that word in connection with karma because karma is just action. All actions have results or consequences. Um, it's like uh, Richard Smalley, who wrote the foreword to my book one time, said, he said, yeah, everybody wants to know why bad things happen to good people, but nobody ever wonders why good things happen to bad people. <laughs> I always thought that was great. It's like, okay, why do good things happen to bad people? You know, if we're talking karma, it, it's it's kind of a neutral thing, and, and if we're all responsible for it. Uh, nobody is responsible for, for what we have, and I don't think that necessarily someone having cancer is as a result of that person necessarily. I think that 
for example, I think Brent's cancer, and he never felt that way. He just always felt like that was his, that was his path. That was what was supposed to, to be. Um, was it for him to learn? Maybe. But he was actually wiser about his path at that time than I was. You know, I was the first one to, when the doctor said, oh, you know, yes, but the test came back, you have esophageal cancer. And I was just like stunned. I was like, I'd never known anybody with cancer before. I, you know, I, I had no idea uh, what was in store, what would happen. Um, and Brent was just like, well, this should be another uh, excellent adventure. <laughs> and I was just like, really? <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe, maybe I had lessons that I needed to learn. You know, we, we have these interconnections with people that we meet along our path. And nothing is accidental or um, in a random, uh, which quantum physicists, other scientists may disagree with that. They believe in, in randomness of nature and so forth. But I think that uh, everything that comes to us has meaning and purpose. Um, even death, even illness and death, I think, have meaning and purpose. But it's how we look at it. It's what are we what are we seeing in this? And are we really trying to see what's in this for us? Or are we just going to sit there and go, oh, woe is me. You know, why me? You know, um, it's not why me. It's wow. Wow. Me. Am I lucky to have this happen to me in my life? And what can I gain out of it? Yeah. Well, there's a lot in what you just said. Um, the thing about everything having meaning and purpose it doesn't mean, to my understanding, that if you stub your toe, for instance, you need to sit down and say, what does this mean? You know? <laughs> um, it's not like there's some deep significance to every little thing that happens. Um, but not, But I totally agree with you, at least from my understanding of things, that nothing happens arbitrarily or meaning or, you know, just accidentally or anything else. Uh, the, and the underlying presumption of that is that, and and the whole underlying presumption of karma, because if you think about it, um, who keeps track of karma? I mean, there are a billion, eight billion people in the world all doing things. And, and then there's animals that, you know, have accidents or get eaten and all kinds of stuff going on. Um, is that karma? And who keeps track of it? Well, my, my understanding, um, and I'm obviously I'm not asserting this as a dogma is that we are swimming in an ocean of intelligence. The, you know, God is referred to sometimes as omniscient. Uh, we're swimming in an ocean of intelligence and, and which functions at every level of creation from the subatomic to the intergalactic and every, nothing is accidental. There's a quote from some physicist. I don't have it at my fingertips, but he said something like if, if a single molecule is out of place, there, there is no God. In other words, everything is, functioning in complete what's the best word with with, with in, in complete perfection uh in, with relationship to everything else and um so it there's a, there's a verse in the bhagavad gita that says that karma is unfathomable by human intellects uh because it's just too complex you can't figure it out it is um, um but there are there is higher intelligence in this universe than human intellects and there is a level of intelligence at which all of this can be 
monitored or orchestrated. Uh, not like God is sort of up at some switchboard pulling strings, but just all pervading intelligence um, takes care of it. Right. I, I would agree. I, I think this idea, even when I was a child, I used to think, okay, now who's keeping track? Right. You know, is, is somebody up there with a pen and paper and they're, you know, well, Claire did this today and Claire Santa did Claus today. watching whether you're not and, nice. You know, and then when you die, <laughs> they get out the book. And they say, well, looky here. Um, And that never made sense to me. Uh, I always thought that that can't possibly uh, be right. But I think when you look at karma, it's it's really, it's our responsibility. Um, And that's kind of the difference uh, between liberation in the Eastern philosophical sense and salvation in the Judeo-Christian sense. Liberation is... Uh, you are responsible for your actions. You're responsible for, you know, your actions, body, speech, and mind. And so you create, uh, create all the karmic implications throughout all your lifetimes that will eventually ripen into, uh, into the life you have in this present lifetime. Salvation is something that is done for you by someone else. And, and so, um, I would rather kind of be responsible for my own, uh, you know, if I experience nirvana or heaven, um, than to have somebody else like judge me based on, you know, the book, whatever book that <laughs> is out there. And you're right. I mean, the, we live in an intelligent universe. We live in an informed universe, as the quantum physicists tell us. And, and that information is there. Everything exists in potentiality uh, until an observer observes and then it becomes actuality. So it's that intelligence that, that really guides us and, and helps us through our lifetimes without all this judging and you know, dying, going to heaven, going to hell, who's reading the book, who's going to judge me. You know, it's me. And to me, that gives me a lot of freedom to to be who I am and to make my decisions and to make choices that help me on the path, that, that push me along the spiritual path. And I think that's important. Yeah, when people have near-death experiences and have life reviews, <clears throat> it's like, okay, here's what here's what you did. And, you know, you judge it. It's not like we're judging you now. Uh, it's more like, okay, here's what, here's, you know, how this person felt when you did that. And here's how his family felt as a result of what you did to him. And you get to experience or feel what the ramifications of your action. And uh, just one more thing on what you just said. Uh, yes, it, everyone has one's own responsibility, but that doesn't mean we don't get help. I mean, I, I, I believe in guardian angels, for instance, you know, that are sort of, helping out and nudging us this way and that. Um, and uh, well, I, I guess that's my point. Yeah. But, and also the whole idea of grace, you know, there's a certain, some people say that final enlightenment is really a matter of grace. You, there's nothing, it's nothing you could possibly do, but you just kind of, maybe you could do something to get yourself up to the threshold, but it's grace that brings you across. Um, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, that that could be too. Uh, and you're right. I mean, there are many times in my life uh, that 
I have been given answers. I've had doors open that I never thought were possible. And I don't know uh, if it's, you know, a guardian angel or, you know, that has protected me when I've, um, you know, had things happen um, or whether it's uh, the intelligence of the universe that guides me to where I need to go. You know, people often ask me, well, how did, how did you get to, to be this and do what you're doing? And, and I said, I don't know. I didn't have any plans. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I was sitting back in the woods in my thinking tree uh, by the creek and um, just kind of thinking like kids do and thinking, oh, I wonder what I'll be when I grow up. For the first time in my life, my inner voice came on and it was audible, but it wasn't externally audible. It was internally audible. And it said, you're going to be a writer, Claire. My inner voice always calls me by name. I don't know whether that's to get my attention or let me know that he's, it's really talking to me and not somebody yeah. else. But, um, you know, you're going to be a writer, Claire. And I went, wow. And I thought, how interesting. And I, at that time, I thought, well, that's God talking to me. Um, and because, you know, I was raised to believe, you know, in an anthropomorphic God that, you know, a God that looked like my father or, you know, some other male, you know, figure. And well, that's God talking to me. And, and as I got older and, and it would happen periodically, just from time to time, you know, I'd be thinking about a problem or, or worried about something. And all of a sudden, you know, I might look at something just often and all of a sudden the answer comes just and, and so I do believe there's guidance, there's, there's intelligence that gives us opportunities. Uh, I think we know where we're supposed to go. Sometimes we just don't know how to get there. And I think that's where the guidance comes in. It's like, okay, I'm going to help you get there. And I think that and it's been very helpful for sure. No, we're not, we're not here by ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And even if we think of God as an oceanic, all-pervading field of intelligence, that 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 ocean has waves and we're a wave you know we're kind of an instrument of the divine in our own right and there are other instruments maybe some of which are not visible to most people you know subtler and so if angels exist and and so on those are also you could say impulses of that unbounded intelligence that that perform specific functions and some of some of their functions may actually have to do with life on earth, you know, helping out human beings. Um, anyway, that's the way I see it. <laughs> I <would> agree. <laughs> and we all have different perspectives and, you know, and, and our lives, how we live our lives and the things that happen help develop those perspectives. And, you know, but yeah, it's a, it's a big ocean. That's for sure. Yeah. And just the way I phrased that a minute ago, obviously I'm not stating a dogma. I'm just, presenting it as a hypothesis for which there seems to be a fair amount of information, but it's not necessary for anybody to believe this. It's just play with it, you know, see, see how it fits. Yeah, I I would agree. And that's why I say the questions are always more important than the answers because everything you read or everything you listen to, um, it's not necessarily going to give you the answers. And sometimes I think that people really get involved in a search that, they believe will give them the answers. The answers are going to come from out there somewhere. If I just listen to the right 
uh, Zoom show or the right, you know, <laughs> you're the right person or go to the right uh, spiritual uh, center or church um, and listen to the right preacher that I'm going to get all the answers. And I think that's, I think that can be more harmful than helpful. I've even known people that go to the Buddhist center that believe that, oh, well, Buddhists have all the answers. So I'll go to this Buddhist center. And if I just learn how to sit in the right posture and say the right words and do a hundred mantras, I will find the truth. And then they get disappointed when it doesn't happen. And they go, well, what happened? Well, Maybe you're looking out there when you should be looking in here um, because, you know, as Jesus once said, the, the kingdom of heaven is within. It's not without. And the same goes for truth, I, I think. I, I think that the truth is within, uh, which is why I wrote my little book many years ago, The, the Teacher Within. Yeah. And I think people understandably want security. You know, they want some kind of certainty if that's possible and you know the life is 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 wild and crazy and you know we want meaning we want some kind of anchor to stabilize our life um and naturally we're accustomed to looking for everything outside so that's where we initially begin to look i remember when i was a teenager um and just starting to think about things in some muddled way i would i would latch on to somebody i think well this guy knows where it's at you know to use 60s terminology which is what the time period I'm talking about. And then after a while, I think, nah, he doesn't know where it's at. <laughs> but this guy, this guy over here knows where it's at. <laughs> and I think gradually over the years, it kind of shifted to more of an internal frame of reference. <laughs> right, right. Well, I know one of my big great awakenings was uh, the whole Jim Jones thing yeah. um, down in Guyana. And it was interesting because I was raised uh as a mainstream Protestant Christian in the Disciples of Christ Christian Church. And Jim Jones had actually become a minister in the Disciples of Christ Christian Church. Mm. And when I read about all that was going on in Guyana and how these people, you know, 900 and some of them drank uh, cyanide Kool-Aid, that just, I, I, w- I was just stunned. I, and I began to ask myself, how do people believe in another person to the extent that they will drink cyanide Kool-Aid or that they will give that to their children because they were told to? How does that happen? How can people believe that, that this person out here has all the answers? And I really began to explore that. But it didn't keep me from believing that when uh, when the Mormon Church came along, I believe they had all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was funny because the minister at the Christian church where I was going at the time, um, when I was uh, in my 20s, he said, well, you know, you're going, you know, I was going to marry this Mormon man. I, I met him and he was a Jack Mormon, uh, which meant, you know, he was raised in it, but he didn't necessarily practice it all and so forth. And I was talking to, to uh, the minister one day and, and I said, uh, and he said, well, you know, you'll probably join the Mormon church, Claire. And I said, oh, no, I won't. I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. I don't know. He said, oh, yes, you will, because you have a lot of questions and Mormons have all the answers. <laughs> and, and as it turned out, it was true. I mean, 
I never ran into a group of people that just, they had all the answers. I mean, if you have a question, they had an answer. And, and it was kind of interesting because of course, after 10 years, I, um, was excommunicated for preaching false doctrine. I thought it was perfectly fine. I didn't, I didn't have a problem with it. What were you saying? Some Buddhist stuff? <laughs> no, I hadn't even encountered Buddhism at the time. I was really getting into New Testament principles, you know, of, of you know, Jesus and, you know, that kind of thing. And they didn't like my take on it. So, <laughs> so so Mormonism accepts the New Testament. They just didn't like your your interpretation well, of it. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, because I disagreed with the Mormon um rules and regulations. I see. I had well Jesus didn't make those rules. Right. Jesus didn't have those regulations. You know, love God, love your neighbor as yourself and preach the gospel. I mean, what more is there? <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was in trouble more than I was out of trouble in my last few years as a Mormon. Like I said, it was a 10 year journey, um, after which I wrote A Stranger in Zion. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think you have to be really, really careful. And unfortunately, I think when we're young, you know, like you said, when you were young, you know, you listen to these people, oh, that this person has all the answers. This person has the, you know, and I think we have to kind of go through some of this stuff and learn that, no, those people don't have all the answers. They may have great ideas. And, you know, I would hear ideas. I would read books. I would explore these things. But um, I, I knew that at that point that it's not out there. It's in here. Yeah. Did you have to like, appear before some board of inquisitors or something? I absolutely did. Wow. <laughs> Seven men and, and the bishop. Uh, but I I had everything already. I had I had my papers all written out. You know, I'm a writer after all, so I had to write all this out. And I uh, quoted uh, New Testament scripture to them. And uh, I, I sort of had my 95 thesis, as it were. Only mine weren't 95, but there were about a dozen. Yeah. And uh, and they then uh, they excused themselves to contemplate whether I should be allowed to remain a member or not. And they came back in and said, well, uh, you know, we've decided to excommunicate you. And I said, well, that's good. I said, um, you know, and then they offered me, well, if you ever want to come back, uh, the, the church doors are always open. I said, no, I think I've learned everything about Mormonism I need to know in this lifetime. So <laughs> well, that's uh, the end of that. <laughs> yeah, I think as Groucho Marx put it, I wouldn't want to belong to a club that would accept me as a member. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were probably sorry that it all happened in the first place, but. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing though. This whole thing about believing things and holding on to beliefs rigidly and assuming that they are the truth and assuming that we have the truth and nobody else does. And it's all kind of very egotistical in my mind. Um, very sort of uh, self-protective and, you know, I mean, I haven't been called by any 
fundamentalists on the phone for a long, long time. But last time I was, I started talking astronomy with them. I said, do you realize how big the galaxy is and how many planets there are and how many galaxies there are and the probability of life on all these planets? And, you know, is Jesus on tour? Does he spend 33 years on each inhabited planet? Or, you know, and I, they hung up on me after a while. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was good. Uh, yeah, that's a... Uh... Well, I mean, I think there is a lot of, um, I think you're right. There's a lot of ego involved in believing that you have all the truth and, and other people don't. Yeah, just about that, every single cult in, in existence believes that. Exactly, exactly. And, uh, and I think that, um, I think it's very, um, it's very detrimental to the spiritual path. I think that, uh, you know, at some point you have to transcend ego and believe that, you know, everything's out there for you to explore. And, and, and not everybody believes like me. I don't believe like everybody. Um, but that's where I get this idea of your personal truth. What is your personal truth? You know, the truth within. Um, and I don't believe it's the same for everybody. I mean, obviously a, a lot of us can agree on a lot of things, but, um, I think that, to get caught in these rigid belief systems is very detrimental to the spiritual path. I think Ravi Ravindra said recently in a class that I was listening to, um, said that, you know, religion might be good for learning the law, but it's very bad for traversing the spiritual path. (laughs) (laughs) You know, organized religion he was talking about. So, um, I think that's probably true. Yeah. I've interviewed Ravi. Um, yeah, and when you say, you know, we have to sort of look within, find truth within, all that stuff, to my mind, my interpretation of that doesn't mean that, you know, everybody's perception of the world is, or opinions about things, uh, is equally valid. I mean, if if somebody thinks the earth is flat, and I don't, I don't think that we're on equal footing, you know, given the evidence um, <laughs> and with a lot of other topics like that. But um, but I, I think what you're getting at with that and what get people get at when they say that is that you can't r- realize truth through an intermediary. It has to be direct personal experience. And, you know, you can play with philosophies and ideas all you like, but when you get right down to it, there has to be a sort of an inner merging or unification with the ground of being uh and then that will be that will bring the certainty that you seek right right and and you mentioned you know the 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 flat earth thing well obviously um you know that's something that you know there are scientific things uh and and yeah if somebody says the earth is flat well that's fine to me if they want to believe that that's fine but that's where you have to have discernment right you you have to have a discerning mind about these things um and i think that that's important you can't just and and when i say to believe what's in with it your truth within obviously the truth is often not a tangible thing uh it's often not even uh, maybe some people wouldn't even consider it scientific and uh yeah i've i've had some of those conversations with people that that absolutely believe that they are right and everybody else is wrong. And, but again, it's that ego thing. It's, you know, that they're right and everybody else is wrong. And, 
it gives them this uh, this feeling, and, and especially a, a big organization like the Mormons, for example, that go out and convert people, uh, thousands of missionaries out there converting people. And I, I think that the more they convert people, you know, even Jim Jones, you know, they get people to follow them or any cult, they get people to follow them. And the more people that follow them, the more uh, confident they become in their own egotistical uh, perception of the world and their own ideas. And, and that, to me, can lead down to kind of a dangerous path, really. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. I'm glad I didn't have to do that when I was a kid. We usually have a couple of Mormon missionaries wandering around town here. And uh, I've had chats with them occasionally and they're nice kids, but um, I don't know. It's <laughs> uh, So let's get back to the I, I, one thing that was 10 minutes ago in our conversation, we were talking about reincarnation and the Christian Christianity and so on. And uh, you've probably read Yogananda's autobiography, right? Uh-huh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a chapter in there, and I'm sure that other biblical scholars can corroborate this, but he claims in that book that reincarnation used to be part of the Christian doctrine, but that it was edited out at the Council of Nicaea because it, it, the people there felt that it granted people too much latitude in terms of, you know, oh, I can do whatever I want, I'll take care of things next lifetime, that, you know, that he felt they had the church authorities wanted people to get, get on with it and, you know, attain salvation in this lifetime. Um, but anyway, it could very well be that reincarnation is as much a part of Christianity as it is of any other religion. It just got edited out. Well, I have heard that uh, too. And I've, I've even had a, there's a couple of quotes um, in the new Testament of uh, uh, one point when uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And, uh, and one of the disciples said, well, some say you are Elijah or Elisha or one of the prophets, kind of indicating uh, kind of a belief that, that you could come back in another form and continue your ministry, so to speak. Um, and then another time when um, I think that, um, a father came to him um, and his son was, um, his, or his a father came to Jesus. His son was blind, I believe. And one of the disciples asked Jesus, well, who sinned, this man or his father? You know, indicating that did, the, was, did some, this guy do something in a previous life that caused him to be born blind? And now this little boy is blind. So was it a previous life that he did something wrong and now he's blind? Which, again, is that retributive form of, of karma that we talked about earlier. But I do believe that if there was a belief in reincarnation in the Judeo-Christian tradition, I do think that it would have made sense to have it edited out uh, by the uh, by the mainstream, uh, you know, Catholic, the Universalist uh, Christian tradition, because uh, you're right. If people thought, well, why am I why am I giving money to the church to buy my way out of purgatory? If I'm going to be reincarnated. So there might have been a kind of follow the money kind of thing to that, too. Um, So, uh, you know, and and to to this day, people don't like the idea. I run into a lot of people that do not like the idea of reincarnation. I had an elderly friend. She was in her 90s and and she uh, 
she had a really, I thought, a fascinating life and everything, but she didn't like her mother. Her mother was mean and uh, whatever, whatever. And, uh, and she says, well, I'm not going to come back. She says, I refuse to be reincarnated. I will never come back. You know, and, uh, and I used to laugh and tease her about it. I said, well, you might. And, oh, she would, oh, no, I'm never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've run into a few people that just feel like, no, not I'm not coming back. This I, I don't want to be here. Uh, but who knows where here is, you know. We say here, but where is here? So that's another question. Yeah, I mean, do you think people have a choice? Um. In a way, yes. Now, that's a, that's a good question. B. Allen Wallace has a really good essay that I printed off years ago about uh, karma and free will. And how much is free will and how much is karma? You know, concerning our, our life, you know, in this space-time continuum that we exist in now. And, and I think maybe it's a little of both. I think we have, you know, through karma, I think we have uh, inclinations toward uh, this direction or that direction. I think free will, maybe the door opens and we're given an opportunity, but free will goes, I don't want to do that now. I don't want to go there. So I, I don't think it's cut and dried. I don't think it's black and white. I mean, I think it's maybe a little of both. And, and I do believe in free will. Uh, I also believe in karma. Yeah. You know, the, the nursery rhyme, row, row, row your boat. So, you know, you're, you're, you're going down the stream in a boat and the stream carries you along. You don't have much choice about that, but you have an oar and you can row. And so you can kind of steer the boat this way and prevent hitting that rock. And, you know, you can assist in certain ways to make sure the the journey down the stream is as smooth as possible. Right, right. That's a good way to look at it. I, I like I like that analogy. Uh, I, we always have, I think we always have options. And that's one of the great things about uh, human rebirth. Um, you know, in Buddhism, they say it took us lifetimes to attain finally a human rebirth uh, after experiencing rebirth in many other forms. And uh, the nice thing about being human is we can make choices. Um, we We can choose uh, what we do and say, our actions, body, speech, and mind, um, we do have options. And, um, and we also have to be ready then to, uh, accept, you know, whatever the consequences of those options that we've chosen are. Because choice, I think, is an important thing, especially for, for humans, because we can make those choices. And I, I so I, I think that it's, you know, like you said, we're in this stream, but we can choose. And we can also choose to row over to the shore and get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <clears throat> yeah, the Gita has a verse which goes, um, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. Um, so and then it says, live not for the fruits of action, nor attach yourself to inaction. So in other words, do your best, you know, and you, you can't guarantee what the outcome is going to be, but you know, focus on the present and do the best you can. And then, you know, you're increasing the likelihood of, of a desirable outcome. Yeah. And, and don't become attached to outcomes. Uh, The Gita talks a lot about that, about non-attachment to outcomes. And I think that that's one of the really uh, disconcerting things about 
life and the way we live it is we get attached to outcomes or we have expectations that life should turn out this way or that way. And, and I've always said the road to hell is paved with unmet expectations. <laughs> and, you know, people, people suffer because of their unmet expectations. And, and so I think it's, it's really important that we don't get attached to outcomes. Um, and again, that would be like embracing all as the path. Um, we don't know where life is going to lead us. Um, Robbie mentioned just a week ago in, in class that, uh, uh, boy, you know, he said, we're all one breath away from death and, uh, you know, getting, getting back to that topic. Um, and, and so, you know, but to get attached to outcomes or have expectations that life is going to be, uh, you know, different, or it's going to be what we want it to be and not what it is. Uh, really brings a lot of suffering. And so we just, we, we have to learn to, to go with the flow of the stream. Uh, but like you said, we also have oars and we just can't get attached to, uh, to outcomes or attached to our perceptions or attached to our, our rules in life. <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll always be frustrated if we do. Um, the way I play it is, is it's as if, you know, we're in a marvelous, huge, theatrical production and the script writer is just brilliant you know and we don't know exactly how this whole thing's going to turn out we're playing our part and and there continue to be twists and turns in the plot you know and we're we're playing our part to the best of our ability but each twist and turn you think i'll be darned i didn't see that coming that's interesting um you know so but since we're not the script writer um if we're attached to particular outcomes we're always going to be frustrated or thwarted right. or stymied, yeah. That's right. And, and obviously talking about the stream uh, reminds me of um, in uh, in January of 2004, uh, just four months before Brent died, um, they had to, at work, he was, he was working, he was a, a salesperson for uh, a, a large company. And so in their sales meeting, they were supposed to come up with a word that would describe um, their... I guess their feelings or their, their goals or something, but it had to be just one word. And, uh, and Brent came up with the word flow. That was his going to be his word for the year. And I thought, wow, how apropos. Um, and so I immediately went to my library and dug out the book that I've had for years. Um, flow, the psychology of optimum experience it was by that, you know, that, with guy with the big long name, the Michaelis. It's, <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce it, but this book flow and it was great. And I, I, I even quoted out of, out of uh, that book in, um, in my book about what flow is and how to make every experience an optimal experience. And I think that's tricky. That's tricky, especially when things happen that we don't necessarily like or we didn't plan. Um, uh, you know, or the outcomes were different than what we had originally expected them to be. And, um, and I thought, well, how great, you know, that Brent chose that word flow and, and that I had a book about flow. <laughs> so, and it got me back into that book that I hadn't looked at since the seventies when it came out. And I thought how, how great that is that, um, it's very Buddhist in nature that, yeah. You know, we can embrace all as the path. If we just 
kind of let go of our expectations, let go of our attachments to outcomes um, and those sorts of things, we can experience flow, but it takes some work. Yeah. And what you're saying now doesn't mean aimless drifting either. Let's say a person wants to become a doctor. Okay. They have to go to medical school. They have to work really hard. They have a goal, you know, they're going to study and, and all this stuff. Um, and that's perfectly compatible with going with the flow. It, yes. So going with the flow doesn't mean sort of mindless drifting. I just, that's the point I'm right. trying to make. Yeah. But this you know, means, something might happen. They might, right. um, they might get sick. They might break their leg. Um, you know, uh, anything could happen. Um, but all that would be, would be just maybe going that different direction, learning to see that as a, you know, embracing that as part of the path. It, everything is just part of the path. Yeah. You've got all these plans and you break your leg and then you say, well, that's a bad thing, but then you had to stay in bed, which allowed you more time to read. And you picked up a, a book on, on spirituality or Buddhism or Hinduism or, or some other uh, uh, tradition that you really were interested in. And now you're forced to lay there in bed and read this book. And all of a sudden you get brand new ideas and you get excited yeah. that you may not have had if you didn't break your leg and laying in bed. <laughs> you know that story of the Chinese farmer who had one yes. son and one horse? Yes, yes. You want to tell it or you want me to tell it? You tell it. <laughs> okay, so a Chinese farmer. He had a son and a horse. Very poor man in a small little farm. And um, one day the horse escaped. And the neighbors all came and said, oh, what a tragedy. Your horse escaped. How are you going to manage now? And the farmer said, you know, we'll see. And so the next day the horse came back leading several wild horses. And they all walked right in the corral. And the farmer closed the gate. And the neighbors came and said, oh, you're a wealthy man. This is fantastic. All these horses you have now. And the farmer said, we'll see. And then so the son was trying to train one of these new wild horses and he fell off and broke his leg. And the, far the neighbors came and said, oh, what a shame. Your son broke his leg. Who's going to help you with the farm? This is such a great tragedy. And the farmer said, we'll see. And the next day, this army came through town and they were recruiting all the able young men to join the army and go fight a war. And obviously the son couldn't go because he had a broken leg. So end of story for now. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, all is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what my little um, elderly friend of mine that I met uh, through hospice, uh, he used to tell me all the time, all is perfect, Claire, he would tell me, all is perfect. You remember that, all is perfect. And again, it, it's perception. It's how you look at things and it's how you learn to embrace everything as part of the path. Yeah, good. Um Okay, let me just check something here. Okay, a question came in. Let me get my glasses. This is from Matthew McCartan in Toronto. You mentioned, okay, this is a bit of a abrupt segue, but no problem. You mentioned uh, theosophy. Have you studied Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy? It is the least understood, but possibly most profound description of the path ahead for human consciousness. Any comments or thoughts on that? Well, um, yes, I, I have belonged to the Theosophical Society since about 1999. And uh, uh, a woman here in Phoenix started a Theosophical Study Group, which I uh, have kept up with uh, until it dissolved a few years ago. I have read uh, Rudolf Steiner. Um, I think his, uh, I like some of his thoughts. I think that um, 
it, it never really grabbed me, I guess. Um, but I think he wrote one of the best biographies I've ever read on Helena Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society. Um, and he also, I've got one other book of his, um, I can't remember the name of it. And, and I liked the book, but I can't say that I was captivated by Steiner. Um, and maybe because I've, I've read so much and I see that I'm not real, I guess I'm not really totally captivated by any particular thing. I just embrace it all. I mean, I learn things from it, but you know, certain things I can adopt and, and so, but I do think Steiner had some really good ideas. Yeah, good. Yeah, there was a song by the band in which one of the lines was, you take what you need and you leave the rest. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, okay. Why don't we take some of the chapter titles from your book and use those as um, springboards to sure. you know, flesh out the conversation. So the first chapter is why we don't know how to die. <laughs> an interesting one isn't it and one of the first things i thought of when um when brent was diagnosed is we don't really know how to die and i don't know how i thought of that but i just i thought we you know this country we don't know how to die and i guess it really hit home when um and i I tell the story in the book uh when brent was recommended to go see an oncologist um, after he got his, um, his diagnosis of esophageal cancer, um, the gastroenterologist said, you go see an oncologist and he'll tell you the next steps to take. And, um, so we went to this oncologist and of course the oncologist said, you know, well, we're going to do this. You're going to do radiation. And then we're going to, uh, uh, six months of chemotherapy. And then we're going to do, you know, surgery and on and on, you know, and um, and Brent looked at him and said, oh, I don't think so. I think I'll pass on that. <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, you don't tell these people you are not going to buy what they have to sell. Well, he looks at Brent and he said, well, you know, if you don't do everything I say, you're going to die. And Brent goes, dude, I'm going to die anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> And at that. The oncologist picked up his folder and walked out the door, slamming yeah. it behind him. So it dawned on me at that point that not only do we not know how to die, the medical system does not know how we die. And uh, and, and so I, I kind of put that in the book because I thought that was interesting that kind of illustrate that most people would say, yes, please save me, pull out all the stops, do everything. But Brent had it in his mind that he was going to die the way he wanted to die. And he wasn't fearful of death. He was never a fearful person. He, he had a, a very interesting life and he, he was just not a fearful person. And this diagnosis didn't change anything. And, um, and so that's when I began to think, well, how do we have a good death? Because in Buddhism, we talk about having a good death. Well, what is a good death? And how do we die? How do we learn to die without fear? Well, first we have to learn to live without fear. Um, and and our fear of death drives us into a lot of different paths that, uh, and some in fact, sometimes it drives us into the something that will actually cause our death. 
Um, we get so afraid of death that we actually draw that to us. I, there's a, a saying in New Thought, the, what you fear draws it near because, you know, you're always thinking about it, you know, and, and your thoughts are what create your reality. And it's what can bring things to you because we do live in an informed universe and in an intelligent universe. And so thoughts create you know, well, thought forms, um, as, as some people call it, they create these thought forms that then we have to deal with. And, um, and so I think that learning, learning how to live is first and foremost. And then that will help us to die better and maybe learn how to die better and have a good death. That's the goal. Did Brent have, was he into Buddhism or some kind of spiritual no, path? And did he have he much of a philosophical really take on all this? No, he didn't believe in much of anything. <laughs> <laughs> easy going guy uh, he, i think maybe previous lifetimes he was because often he would say things and i would go well that's a very buddhist thought and he'd go really i go yeah and then, you know then i would explain it to him and go oh well i never thought about it like that mainly because he'd never heard of buddhism until he met me so why do you think people are so afraid to die the unknown the unknown, uh, attachments. I talk a lot about attachments in the book. Um, you know, attachment. Well, the Buddha said attachment is the root of all suffering. And, and we've become attached to everything in life. We've become, especially our bodies. What are we more attached to than me, mine, I, the I? And we're so attached to these things. And, and, and the uncertainty What's going to happen when I die? You mentioned you had a, a speaker on near-death experiences. You know, we're a lot seeing of more yeah. of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Seeing more and more of that. Um, and so I think it's the uncertainty. It's the attachments. Um, and I think it's the uncertainty that creates the fear. Um, and if you know that, you know, I call it, you know, the illusion of life and death. Because um, in keeping with the idea that, that, all of this at, at which the quantum physicists would concur is, is illusory. Uh, there's nothing that has any inherent reality from its own side. And so like the Buddha says, why do you want to get attached to things that aren't real? Um, because it's going to change. It's going to go away. Things, you know, we're going to have old age, uh, sickness and death. And so why get attached to it? And I think so that, that has a lot to do with it. I, somebody asked Brent just before he died, is it because he, he bought a new Corvette in January of 2004, just four months before he died. And everybody thought that was so funny. You, know, you bought it. You bought a new Corvette. Uh, you're dying, you know, and uh, and they were saying, are you going to miss your Corvette? And he said, not really. He said it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um. Yeah, your second chapter is entitled Why We Don't Understand Living and Dying. And um, that's probably a good key to why we fear it, because we don't understand it. I mean, generally, we fear the things we don't understand. Sure. Um, I wonder if, I don't even know, I'm just wondering if in cultures which are predominantly Hindu or Buddhist, there is less fear of death. If you did a, some kind of Gallup poll, um, you know, because people are it's more in their blood and bones that we don't die when the body dies. Right. Oh, I definitely think that's true. Fear comes from attachment to life. Right. Right. But I do think that's true. And if you look at a lot of the, uh, 
uh, people in, say, India, for example, um, you know, for a lot of people, their life isn't all that great. Yeah. Um, and down through the ages, it's, it's kind of been that way. And so uh, their belief in death and reincarnation, because they have this, they have this idea that, you know, if you, if you live a good life and you, you know, try to, to watch your, you know, your speech and your actions that you have the hope of coming back uh, for a better life. Right. Um, a little bit difference between Hinduism and Buddhism as far as reincarnation or rebirth shows. But, but I do think that, um, that they have an easier time of it. I think maybe it's our attachments to our material things in the Western world that, that make it difficult. Um, you know, that, you know, we don't want to leave these things. I think it's also thinking that this is me, you know, this, this body is who I am. It's what I am. And therefore when this dies, I, what I am is going to cease to exist. That, right. that, that must be scary on some level. I think it is for people. I, I think that um, they don't maybe understand the mind and the way the mind operates or the soul, some people call it the soul. The Greek word for mind is psyche, or soul is psyche, which is mind. You know, we call it psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, psychics. Um, and and I think that um, if they if they believed that the mind is what creates all reality, uh, the mind is everything is in the mind is created in the mind by the mind. And nothing is created uh, outside the mind. Nothing has any inherent reality outside the mind. And I think that for me, that has become a reality. That is my reality that, you know, thanks to all of my studies with the quantum physicists um, that are just amazing, the, the idea that reality is only in the mind and it is the mind that is eternal it is the mind that that create that goes wherever it goes we say go um not sure i like that word but when the mind leaves the body um that it it exists as people who've had ndes can attest that they may not have a body but they still have this consciousness right of things and even senses functioning Um, yes 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 the Gita has a verse where it compares, you know, changing bodies to like changing worn off clothing, you know, and yeah. uh, you, you, you take, you throw away your worn off clothing, you put on some new clothing and there's, and it's, I think it says what, what, what fear is there in this or what tragedy is there in this or something. In other words, it's not that big a deal. Um, <laughs> and obviously, you know, it's a bit of a hassle to have to die and, you know, and, <laughs> And getting born is no picnic, I'm sure. Um, then you have to, you know, poop in your diapers for a while and you have to go back to high school. And, you know, there's all kinds of <laughs> challenging things, but it's it's not that big a deal in the big picture of things. And and certainly it doesn't touch, you know, what you were just saying, the, the soul level. It's, um, you know, for men may come and men may go, but I go on forever, the soul might say. Yes, that's... That's very true. And I, I think that that's the reason I encourage people to learn about the mind and to, you know, uh, study some quantum physics, study some of Amit Goswami's books or, uh, or B. Allen Wallace, um, 
uh, Fred Allen Wolf. He's one of my favorites. He's uh, one of my favorite books of his is Mind into Matter, How Mind Creates Reality. Um, and there's just all kinds of wonderful books out there that uh, I've often said that maybe uh, maybe quantum physics is the is the new religion. Maybe quantum physics has more to teach us about how we exist and how we create the world around us, how we create the phenomenal world um, and, and why we shouldn't be afraid of losing it because it's just a flip of the mind. And, you know, you die, it's a flip of the mind. What you're saying is very important, really. And, and we could boil it down to this, which is that it's really important to gain understanding. If you're on a spiritual path, um, it's not enough to just meditate and then you know, watch soap operas or something. You, you need to uh, read the accompanying literature. And like you say, uh, quantum mechanics and that kind of stuff is, is very useful. And it's a, you know, there are two legs to the journey, I think. One is experience and the other is understanding. And science itself works that way. You know, they, they have an, a hypothesis and then they try to empirically verify it with some experience, some experiment. And, right. uh, and the spiritual path has the same principle. And I just think that, um, I, and most people do this who are on a spiritual path. They get fascinated with this stuff. They read all the books and everything, but it's, um, it's good to keep a balance between the two, you know, and they can get out of balance both ways. I've seen people who just read a lot of books, don't do much spiritual practice of any kind and <clears throat> begin to mistake their understanding for uh, actual realization. And then I've seen people who are having profound experiences and don't know what the heck is going on and they need more understanding. Right, right. No, I, I think that's very true. I hear a lot of people, um, especially when I was going to a Buddhist center a few years ago, I'm talking about enlightenment. And, um, and there was there was one guy that used, he used to go to every Buddhist thing, organization building that he could find. And uh, he was always looking because he was going to find the one thing and he was going to be enlightened. And yet he really didn't know what enlightenment was. He just heard that, you know, that was the way it was, you know. And I always like the Zen Buddhist saying, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. So I think... Um, I think our practice makes a difference in our lives. If it doesn't make a difference, why are we doing it? Right. And, and I think that's the important thing I learned uh, through Brent's illness and death was, um, you know, yeah, intellectually, I'd been reading all this stuff, but I really didn't know the experience of, of what it was talking about, about impermanence and change and, uh, and attachment. And, and once I learned that it, gave practice meaning that maybe it didn't have before. And I think that that's really what it's about. Yes, it should change your life, but is it going to change your life in some radical way that, you know, you're going to suddenly get a halo and sprout wings or something? You know, no, <laughs> but I think it has to make a difference. All the practices that we do, whatever your practice is, whatever you choose to make your practice if it doesn't make a difference in your life it's like why are you doing it yeah and in the long run it will be radical as you know the word radical comes from the, the root from the word root right and um and that's what spirituality is all about is the getting right down to the root of life um but you know it's not necessarily an overnight deal <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a, a lifelong process I think. right and i think that's what people look for they look for this uh Quick you know, fix. this sudden, 
you know, instant flash of, uh, you know, whatever it is they think enlightenment is. And, uh, um, and I've got a little cartoon that I keep posted up here. It's, uh, you know, the older monk is sitting with a young monk and he's, and the, the, the caption is, is, uh, uh, nothing. This is it. In other words, he just got an enlightenment. He wants to know, okay, what's nothing. This is it. (laughs) And so I think, um, and maybe it comes in little flashes. I think it does. I think, um, I mean, for me, it has, I don't expect any great big lightning bolt to strike me, but the little flashes are helpful and it keeps me going. It keeps me, you know, um, with understanding and experience together. I think that, like you said, it's very important. Here's a chapter entitled Living with Suffering, How Not to Suffer. Let's talk about that. Well, that's an interesting, that's another one of these things that takes a lot of explaining to people because they go, well, we all suffer. Well, of course, you know, the Buddha said, life is pain and suffering. Um, That's the first noble truth, actually. So the Buddha admits that, Yes, life is pain and suffering. Do you have to suffer? And what is suffering? Um, and I think that um, I used a couple of illustrations in the book uh, of how people suffer. People suffer when life turns out to be not what they were expecting. Uh, people suffer when things happen that they didn't want to happen. And often it said, you know, we have pain. We can experience pain. But suffering is a choice. And, and that's a tough one for most people. It is and tough. I I mean, if I were to get crucified, you know, to take an extreme example, I'm sure I would be experiencing a lot of pain. And I'm not sure that I wouldn't be suffering, too. I don't know if I could, you know, go through an experience like that without getting into full-fledged suffering as well as pain. <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Do you think Jesus suffered? I had a teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, uh, who was doing an interview um, on BBC with Malcolm Muggeridge, who was an interviewer, and the abbot of Downside, who was some event, um, Episcopal or whatever they are in, in England. Uh, and he said, Christ never suffered, Maharishi said this. And these guys were like, what? You know, <laughs> and, and then he kind of explained it. He was basically saying, you know, from his perspective in the state that he was in, he was grounded in a reality that was beyond the field of suffering, beyond the possibility of suffering. And, you know, he probably would have acknowledged that, yeah, his body feel, felt pain, but he was just saying that his predominant reality was so profoundly that of divine consciousness that whatever else was happening to his body or whatever was kind of more on the surface. He didn't elaborate like that, but I'm just th- filling right. it in. Well, that sounds good. I, I would, I think I would agree with that. I think that, uh, we can get beyond suffering. Um, a lot of our suffering has to do with mental pain. Uh, and how do people get beyond that? I mean, we see a lot of that. Um, and I think it's, it's important to, uh, learn to get beyond the idea of suffering. Um, and everybody has to look at that and practice in their own way. Um, because suffering is real. Even the Buddha acknowledged that, but he also said, you only suffer when you want life to be different than it is. Yeah. And if there's no point in, in 
wanting life to be different than it is, then, you know, you're going to suffer. Um, I know Brent told me just before he died, he was, he was worried about what I was going to say, you know, because I told him I was going to write an obituary. And he said, well, he said, if anybody asks you if I suffered, he said, tell them I didn't because I never wanted life to be different than it is. And, and I thought, you know, for somebody that had no idea what the Buddha said, I thought that was pretty telling, you know, yeah. he, he, you know, he just accepted life for what it was. It was his adventure and he embraced it. And so he didn't really suffer. It's very Byron Katie-ish if you've ever studied Byron Katie. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously attachment has a lot to do with it, basically just in terms of what you're saying. I mean, think about just about every rock and roll song or many other songs going back for decades is all about, oh, my baby done left me and I am so miserable. <laughs> um, you know, uh, because there's an attachment that, uh, and we're, something is being torn away from us and yeah, and we're, you know, we're attached and that hurts that, that causes suffering. Well, maybe we need to practice just letting go, yeah. letting go, letting it be. Um, and that's a hard one too, you know, to, especially where our relationships are concerned, you know, being able to let go, um, and, and believe that there is something more. Maybe that person walked out the door and left us, but there will be something more, something greater. And I think if that's what we believe, um, then I think it will happen. I think we get this ego thing going, oh, I can't live without this person. And when I was doing uh, hospice volunteer work um, for a couple of years after Brent died, I was really amazed at the number of people that would stand at the bedside and go, you know, don't leave me. Don't leave me. I can't live without you, you know. And it's like, well, maybe you should have learned to let this go, um, you know, along the way, knowing that all things are impermanent, that everything changes, that nothing is forever and, and learn to see it that way. Um, because I think that learning to let go is a is a big part of this idea of non-attachment. Yeah. It's not that you're, you know, it's not like unattachment. I often see that word a lot. People write about it and they call it being unattached. It's non-attachment. It's a, it's the letting go, it's the willingness to let go. Um, and, and I think that's the important thing is, is being able to let go and see that there is more. There is more, but you have to, to get there, you have to let go of this to maybe see what is next, what comes next. Yeah. Um, and we might be sounding kind of glib right now to some, a mother who has lost a child or something like that. But um, a couple of months ago, I interviewed a, a woman named Karen Johnson, who was a federal judge in the Washington, D.C. area, and her son committed suicide. Uh-huh. Uh, her son was 27, I believe, at the time. And it really threw her for a loop. I mean, it, it, she she just yeah. you know, it really hit her hard. And uh, But, you know, she had been working her butt off for decades, climbing up the ladder of success. And she was in this burnout job where she was working 10 hours a day with a two hour, with an hour commute on either side of it. You know, she would leave in the morning when it was dark and come home at night when it was dark and, you know, just really pushing it. And, um, this thing catapulted her into a life of seeking and she ended up, you know, retiring and 
studying shamanism and traveling all over the world and doing psychedelics and just, you know, seeking every which way. And she's a very different person now and a very happy person. And I wouldn't say she would, she would, she would, she wouldn't say that I'm glad my son died, but she realizes that there was a wisdom to the whole unfolding of things. And she still feels like she's very much in touch with her son and um, that in the cosmic scheme of things, all is well and wisely put. Yeah, I am. Uh, I know a, a young woman. She's a good friend of my daughter's and her uh, 21 year old son uh, killed himself. He was in Hawaii in the Navy and he killed himself. And this was over three years ago now. And um, she has never gotten past it. She's never gotten over it. She just does everything she can to try to distract herself from it, but it involves all the wrong things. Um, and it's sad. It's really sad to see somebody that just can't see any good at all that could come of this. Um, and, and yet there is good. There is good in, in everything. I mean, if there's anything we can learn in life is that good nothing's all good nothing's all bad that you know out of bad things really good things can come as as the person you were talking about recognized and yet this gal just and i feel i really feel for i i just but there you know my daughter says but there's no way to help her mom there's no way to help her she's going to stay in her suffering and I know uh, Ravi mentioned one time, he said, often we get addicted to our suffering. We become attached to our suffering because in some ways it's the suffering that I suppose makes us feel good, gets us sympathy. I, I don't know. But he said we can often get attached to our suffering more than we get attached to our pleasure. You know, there there might be something that could be done to help this woman. Like if what if you had her watch my interview with Karen Johnson? Um, I've, I've recommended many things. Uh, you know, grief to growth is a, I did a, an interview with him a few months ago. Um, he lost his teenage daughter and he it impelled him to start this um, podcast called grief to growth. And um, she, I, I don't know. It, it just, I guess when the student is ready, the teacher will come, but you know what you do in the meantime you can tell people anything and if they're not in that place where they can hear it, see it or yeah. yeah or and hear it i i don't know that's yeah i mean it comes it comes back to what we were saying earlier about the importance of understanding if this woman had a deeply ingrained understanding that nobody really dies then sure, she would feel the pain of the loss of her son and everything, but I don't think it would hit her as hard. It wouldn't, she wouldn't be as lost as she is right, right. now in, in the grief. Well, you know, there's the story of, of, uh, that the Buddha tells, uh, in some of the, the, uh, the tales about his life where, uh, a woman came to him with her dead baby and begged him to revive the child. And the Buddha said, well, I will do that for you if you bring me a mustard seed from the household of someone that has never tasted death. And so she runs around and she, you know, have, you know, all these houses in the village and trying to find someone who's never experienced the death of a loved one. And unfortunately, she went back to the Buddha and she didn't have the mustard seed, but she understood 
what he was telling her, and that is, we all die. Death is a part of life. You can't separate it. Death is just the flip side of the coin of life. And, um, and I think that's, that's a good story too. And, but I don't know that it helps people who are, are just really suffering from the death, especially the death of a child, I think. Although, you know, it is a tradition that in Indian funerals, I've been told to read those passages from the Gita that go into the, you know, certain is certain indeed is death for the born and certain is birth for the dead. And there's a whole bunch of verses like that in the second chapter. So just to remind people of, yeah, this is the way it is. This is the teaching. And therefore over the inevitable, you should not grieve and things like that. Yes. Um, Wise men grieve neither for the dead nor for the living. Right. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Uh, I like that verse. You know, death is certain for the born, and uh, you know, and birth once, to the you're, dead. once you're born, you're bound to die. And, uh, and, <laughs> once uh, you're death, dead, you're, and then you're bound you're to be born. Destined for rebirth. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, it's you know, I mean, the culture that we live in, any culture, is like a big giant thing with a lot of inertia, and it doesn't just flip overnight. Although sometimes it does. I mean, golly, some of the changes we've seen uh, in the over the recent de- years of, I don't know, gay marriage and all kinds of things that we thought would never happen that just overnight, boom, okay, fine, that's the norm now. Um, there's a few holdouts, but um, so who knows? I mean, some people think that we're uh, in the midst of, and I think I heard you talk about this, that we're in the midst of, midst of some kind of mass awakening. And that, um, you know, we could be, we could see a phase transition where things change a lot, a lot sooner than, than anyone expected. That could be, I've heard that from a lot of different people that they seem to think we're in this um, period of a shift, Right. that uh, things are getting ready to shift, that things aren't going to be, and they may not be like we expect, but that uh, things are going to shift. I mean, well, they have to. Everything changes. It has to. Nothing stays the same. And um, and, uh, and along the path, we just have to, you know, look as the witness and embrace everything as the path. Learn to go with the flow, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And it really does have to, because if we keep on going as we're going, um, there won't be anybody alive in 100 years. Uh, you know. Yeah, so, right. Something's got to give. Right. That's for sure. Okay. What else we got here? All kinds of interesting topics. Any questions coming in, Irene? Yeah. Just She's going to send over a question. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just trying to decide which of all your chapter titles would be interesting to talk about. Um, they're all interesting, but uh, I want to make sure we cover the things that most interest you. Is there anything that jumps out at you? Um, well, you know, I, I think that the, the, you you mentioned it a little bit about the the business of illness and the cost of keeping people alive, and mm-hmm. I think um, um, that's that's a, another issue that at some point we're going to have to face. Yeah. Um. Uh, you know, and yeah, Medicare. According to Medicare, eighty percent of all Medicare dollars are spent in the last year of a person's life. So, how much you know, and and is quantity the goal? Is quantity the goal? You know, the business of illness, and it is a huge business. And and you know, the, the cost of keeping us alive at all costs. I mean, and people need to think about that. And and what 
what kind of suffering are we going to put people through? Do we, do we need to know how to die better so that we can uh, alleviate some of the suffering? Uh, I, I've known people personally who were in the hospital, um, two people that I can think of that were in the hospital. There was the one gal was told, you know, there's nothing more we can do. Well, maybe we've got one more test, one more treatment. And she just said, no, let me go. Just yeah. let me go. And, and they did. And I think it's hard for doctors to make that choice because doctors don't know how to treat death and dying. Right. Their job is to try to keep people alive. Right. Right. So I, I think it's I think it's difficult. I think it's a difficult question. Um, but at some point, you know, we have to we have to face it. We have to. Um, I know uh, Dr. Kevin Hasselhorst, who I, I talk about in the book, he wrote a, a book about having a universal directive. What do you want and what you, what you don't want? Uh, you know, a, a kind of an end of life directive. Uh, and we don't think about that because, you know, we walk around every day. You know, even the Buddha said we walk through life every day. And see, oh, that person is is old and sick, and that person died. But oh, that's not going to happen to me. <laughs> that's what <laughs> you know, that's to... what got the Buddha started. I mean, his father was trying to protect him from seeing things like that, exactly. and one one day he got out and saw them and said, "What's wrong with these people?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he realized that there had to be more. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, I think we've all owned old cars that kept breaking down and needing expensive repairs and you know we we're just funneling money into them and at a certain point we we realized you know i'd be better off just selling this old car and getting a newer one um so i think it's a good analogy actually i mean there's a certain point at which the body is really not serving much useful purpose anymore and there's no no chance of it doing so very little chance and so okay uh, maybe we should let it go but again you know the whole medical establishment and the whole society itself doesn't see it that way for the most part exactly we we have come to the um to the point where we expect the medical establishment and particularly the pharmaceutical establishment to be able to save us from everything yeah and uh and i think that's a lot of the reason that we've we've forgotten how to die uh, unlike people, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, um, people, you know, death was very close then because there wasn't really a whole lot that could save you, um, you know, and uh, and so death was very close and, and death is not close anymore. Um, I think another reason is most people die in, a, in an institutional setting, either hospital, palliative care unit, a hospice facility. Um, and so we're not close to the dying process. And I know that's one thing that really helped me. Um, I, I got the book, uh, the Tibetan book of living and dying by Sogol Rinpoche. And in it was the, the whole center of the book. Uh, a whole section was on the dying process and what it was like. And obviously not everybody dies that way. Some people are killed instantly. Some people have a heart attack and die instantly or they die in their sleep. Um, and so I think that um, not everybody gets the opportunity to experience the dying process. I was glad that Brent got to experience the dying process. It's hard to watch, 
But because of that book, I was able to, oh, okay, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. You know, I mean, they describe it very vividly, uh, what happens as the, um, as the mind start or the soul starts loosening from the body. Um, and I really think that that was very valuable. And, and it actually uh, converted me from the idea that, you know, maybe the uh, Death with Dignity Society has a point, or it used to be the Hemlock Society. They call it Death with Dignity Society. And I used to be kind of, you know, on board with that. And, you know, and, and then I got to thinking, well, you know, after going through that with Brent, I thought, you know, I think there is value in the dying process. Um, I think there could be value in it for the people, the loved ones who are standing bedside, if they would allow the process to really, I think if they knew about the process and if they understood the process, and again, we're talking about experiencing and understanding, but I do think there is value in the dying process if that is the way we you know, we go and we don't die instantly from a heart attack or a car wreck or something like that. So I guess I've kind of come to that conclusion that, you know, because I I learned a lot from watching Brent. Um, And then toward the end, when when Brent was, uh, it was about two hours before he died, he, he said to me, he said, you know, dying is so easy. He said, I thought it would be harder than this, but it's so easy. And I thought, what a great thought to leave me with. Uh, that's what I try to leave people with. Well, dying's easy. But again, I think, you know, if we understand life, if we know life, if we understand death and dying, I think it can be easy. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's that knowledge with experience. It's understanding that all is impermanent. Nothing lasts forever. All is change. Um, and I think that all plays a part in how well we can embrace all of this. So let me make sure I understand what you were just saying about the Hemlock Society. So I think what you're saying is, you know, maybe somebody who was into the Hemlock Society might say, all right, it looks like I have terminal cancer. Put me to sleep. Um, you know, I'm out of here. What, what you're saying is not so fast. Let, maybe we should go through the, the dying process itself and, and die naturally because there's some kind of cosmic significance to going through that experience um, in its own pay at its own pace, rather than just ending our life when it looks like the end is approaching. Is that what you meant to say? Yeah, I, I think, I think that's true um, for, you know, for whoever, you know, would, would want to approach it that way. I mean, how people want to die is sort of their, you know, their own choice. Yeah. Um, and for me, as I said, I, that gave me this sense that there's value in the dying process. Now, whether, you know, not everybody's going to feel that way. People, uh, a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm old. And uh, in fact, I had a, a good friend that was in the Theosophical Society and he and his wife, um, they were elderly and they both, uh, they had their thing with, you know, the, the Hemlock Society and they had all had it all planned out and they knew the day they were going to, you know, kill themselves. They were going to go together because they'd been together for like 60 years. And so they were going to go together. She up and got sick and died. And so there were uh, three of us gals that, that went to visit him, um, 
about eight months after his wife died. And, and he was really, he was really distraught about it because they were supposed to do this together. <laughs> and now he was left to do this by himself. Hmm. And he said, and he asked me, he said, well, what do you, what do Buddhists say about uh, committing suicide? I said, well, you know, everything is intention. What is your intent? Is your intent to alleviate pain and suffering? You know, the intention to alleviate pain and suffering is a good thing. Uh, I can't be your judge. You know, this is, you know, you have to, you have to choose. Um, but intention is everything. Um, and so we just sort of left it at that. And uh, about three weeks later, um, we got a invitation to his memorial service. He had, um, he had died on his birthday. <laughs> and uh, so the other two gals and I were like, oh my goodness, we, we were, I guess we were a little bit disconcerted about it, but it was his choice and that's okay. I mean, it's not up to me, <laughs> not up to the Buddha. <laughs> Yeah. A question came in from uh, Bill Beatman in Low Country, South Carolina. Um, how to love someone without being attached and not break the bonds of love? What happened after your husband left the oncologist's office? Two questions. Well, I think we're talking about uh, uh, maybe loving unconditionally or, or non-attachment where relationships are concerned. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I've always said that non-attachment is another one of those things that's very misunderstood. I think we can truly love someone when we don't have the ego attachment to them. Uh, as I said, I would see a lot of people, you know, don't leave me. I can't live without you. And there's always the me in there. You know, I can't live without you. Don't leave me um, kind of a thing. And I think when we, when we love with, non-attachment that's when we truly love we have to love someone enough to allow their life to play out like it is supposed to whatever that means if that means cancer if it means you know whatever um you know a car wreck being disabled whatever we can love without attachment and that's the perfect love because it keeps our ego out of it Brent's life was about Brent. Brent's illness was about Brent. It was whatever that was supposed to be. Maybe in a way it was about me. Maybe the universe was saying, boy, Claire, do we have a lesson to teach you now? Um, but just, you know, and, and I've got four children. Okay. Attachment, learning to allow them to live their lives without me saying, well, you can't do that or you can't do this or, you know, don't do that. You know, you might get hurt. Um, they have to live the life that, that they are meant to live. And loving them purely without attachment is learning to love them freely enough to allow them to have their life and let them live their life. Because I don't know what is in store for their life. Um, they each have their own karma. We all have our own karma and maybe we've had this karmic relationship in past lives. Uh, as they say, you know, they say we, we tend to re reincarnate in family groups 
because that's who we create the most karma with is all these family groups, you know, lifetime after lifetime. We just, you know, but I really think that non-attachment is very useful, even for people we love. I think we can love more perfectly without the attachment uh, that are that putting our ego into it um, uh, gives us. Yeah. My feeling is that um, the more inner fulfillment we have, the more naturally we won't be attached to things because we won't really be trying to derive our fulfillment from external things, including people and relationships, uh, which has nothing to do with loving them or not being able to love them. You can love someone profoundly and yet you're not deriving your fulfillment from them because your fulfillment is within and it's just overflowing. And that's why you love them so much. Um, uh, Maybe a good example, a good analogy is like, if you're really poor and you're, you live on the street and, you know, every little loss and gain of a few dollars is a huge thing and you're attached to not losing and you're elated when you gain a few dollars. But if you're a multimillionaire, you know, you can gain or lose thousands every day. Um, I mean, guys like Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg and uh, Elon Musk actually sometimes gain and lose billions in a day. And it's like, no big deal. On with the show. Um, so if if a person is really resting in an ocean of fulfillment um which is our essential nature everyone has that possibility then we are naturally not attached it's not an intellectual exercise to not be attached it's just the way we naturally function i would agree with you i think um i think my my life uh even before i met brent was starting to really come together and i was really uh, having a lot of success you know personal success uh, in my writing and so forth. And, and so I, I can see where, where my, my own personal success and my own personal, um, belief in myself and uh, really helped me get through all this because I love Brent. Uh, I thought we were going to grow old together. We didn't, but it's like, okay, the universe, this is what the universe has for me. Off I go. I'll just continue this great life that I've enjoyed. So I think you're right. I, I never thought about it that way, but I think you're very right. Yeah. I think it was John Lennon who said, life is what happens while we're busy making other plans. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Um, let's say, let's say some people are listening to us and they do have some kind of diagnosis of terminal illness and you know or maybe they're really old or something and they think well you know i'll probably die within the next year or two or three um what would you say to such people as by way of preparation uh, of any kind preparation huh well i guess i would tell people that every day is a preparation (laughs) we should be preparing every day it's that back to that what we talked about at first remember death And it's not like um, you got a terminal illness yesterday and it's not like the fact that you're going to die is like this big surprise. Oh my goodness, I'm going to die. And I think you have to remember too that even if you get a, a diagnosis of a terminal illness, nobody knows when you are going to die. Brent was given six months. He lived for 18 months. And he went back to work and everything after his surgery. You know, so nobody knows when you're going to die. So 
If you don't put that thought in your mind, oh my goodness, they told me I have six months to live. Well, maybe, maybe you only have two months or maybe you have a year or 18 months. And I say, you know, don't dwell on the quantity, but what is your quality? What are you going, you know, Brett wanted to live his life the best he could every day he had left, whether it was six months or a year or 18 months, which, you know, you don't know at the time. You just say, well, you've got six months to live. You don't do all that I tell you to do. You've got six months to live. Do what your heart tells you to do. And for Brent, it said, no, I'm going to live the life I want to live until I die, whenever that is. And that's all any of us can do. Because like I said, death is not this big surprise that, you know, we thought we were going to live forever. And all of a sudden somebody said, no, you're going to die tomorrow. It's like, well, that shouldn't be a surprise. (laughs) We shouldn't be surprised about that. So you just have to live your life the best you can day to day. And if, and if your heart tells you, yes, I want treatment, I want, you know, whatever, you know, do what your heart tells you. Um, because nobody can make that decision for anybody except the person. And, you know, the doctors may want to make it, but then, you know, step back and take a look at things and see what you want to do in your heart. What is your personal truth regarding your body? Yeah. And then there's people like Anita Morjani, who was supposed, you know, everybody expected she was going to be die within an hour or two. And she was already totally unconscious and she was down to I don't know, 70 pounds or something like that. Had a near death experience, came out of it and woke up and, you know, her cancer went away within a couple of weeks. And she's still going st- strong with no sign of, of cancer since uh, I've, I've interviewed her a couple of times. So. Who knows what might happen? I mean, you know, exactly. that's, that's the, the the exception, but it, even that could happen. We don't know. We yeah. don't know. I mean, like I said, nobody knows. Nobody can say, well, you're going to die, you know, here, there. We don't know. Yeah. So It does seem that life is designed so that we lose the big picture when we come into it. And um, I th- I think it must be meant to be that way because that's the way it is. Uh, but you know, they say people who have such insights and near death experiences, and I'll say from, from the other perspective of the other side, you have a much broader vision of the whole scope of life. And, um, you know, but once we're here, it's very dense, you know, material plane. We, we lose past life memories. We lose a lot of insights that we might have had and we just have to make the best of it. Um, perhaps the name of the game with spiritual progress is to, um, you know, gain that cosmic perspective while we're fully ensconced in the material plane and, you know, integrate the two. Um, I don't know why I went off on this tangent, but it seems to me that if we can do that, then it solves so many problems, including this whole death topic. I mean, because we just, it's no longer the big looming unknown that it otherwise might be. I think that's true. I think there's there's a lot of uh, not only people with uh, near-death experiences, but a lot of the teachings uh, of various, you know, the ageless wisdom teachings, uh, Eastern philosophies. Uh, and I think the thing to focus on is the life we have in the here and now and, uh, and, and the quality of that life rather than thinking about the quantity of it. Uh, you know, everybody who's 40 wants to live forever. 
Uh, by the time, by the time you get to 74, it's like, well, maybe not so much. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll sacrifice a few years, you know. Um, my mother always said, she's, well, I want to live to be 90, but I don't want to live to be much older. She had these visions of, of her aunt Clara, you know, 104. And, and, uh, so she, um, you know, at the day before her 97th birthday, she just died. She kept, she kept telling my brother, I feel funny. I feel funny. And uh, he, there was, he took her to the doctor. There's nothing wrong with her. Uh, well, I feel funny. And uh, so the day after her birthday, on her birthday, people came and visited her and so forth. And the day after her birthday, she died. Boom. <laughs> so at least she, she got her wish. She didn't want to live to be 100. So. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Are you 74? You mentioned 74. I am 74. <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'll be 73 in October. Um, I'll be on... 75 in October. Oh, well, I'll, I'll never catch up. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never catch up. No, I'm, I'm way ahead. What, what day in October? Uh, the 6th. Okay, I'm the 11th. <laughs> um, okay, well, this has been fun. Um, we could probably talk for another two hours about this and that, but I think we've given people a good glimpse of, you know, opportunity to ponder these thoughts. Um is there anything you feel like you, you want to say that you haven't had a chance to? No, I, I think, uh, I think we've covered just about all of it. I, I always remind people at the end that, you know, what Brent said, and that is dying is easy. Um, I hope it is for all of us. Dying is easy. He thought it would be harder, but it was really easy. And I think that's a good thing to remember that, uh, death maybe won't be this big horrible thing we think it is but it will be easy and i hope that's for all of us yeah and as the beatles sang and in the end the love you take is equal to the love you make that's right (laughs) all right well thanks so much claire um thank you rick i appreciate it yeah and uh those who are listening or watching i'll create a page on that gap for this interview as i always do and uh, all the previous interviews are archived and categorized in several different ways so you can explore around there and um if you are the type of person who doesn't like to sit in front of your computer for two hours watching a video there's an audio podcast for this program which you can find the link to on the batgap website so thank you for listening or watching and we'll see you for the next one which is a gentleman named steven schneider I'll now plunge into learning all about Steven Schneider. <laughs> I don't know anything about him yet. I, know, I always sort of just binge on, the, on the, the person for a week that I'm about to interview and make a new friend each time. Thanks, Claire. Thank you, Rick. See you around. If I ever come to Phoenix, I'll get in touch. There you go. Happy to see you. <laughs> all righty. Bye-bye. Bye.